Let's pray one more time as we enter into a time of teaching tonight. Father God, we thank you for all of your servants that you alone have raised up in the history of your whole church, O Lord. From faithful Abraham down tonight to Gilbert Keith Chesterton. We thank you for the way that your spirit moves and calls effectually and raises people up, men and women, to love God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. We pray tonight that you would help us to learn, to uh, listen. We pray tonight that Chesterton's example to us might shine as a burning and shining light. We ask now for the assistance, the gracious assistance of your illuminating Holy Spirit. And may yours be the glory, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, tonight we're looking briefly at uh, the life of G.K. Chesterton. <clears throat> and I assume tonight that he's not uh, a well-known name to many of you. Uh, but I hope that as a result of this short talk, you will be encouraged uh, with an increased desire to know Chesterton better than you do. And I'll remind you from the outset that though Chesterton was a devout Roman Catholic, he spent many years as an Anglican. And it wasn't until much later in his life uh, that Chesterton uh, crossed the Tiber, we might say, and uh, joined the Church of, of Rome. Even so, of course, he is a faithful child of Jesus, and uh, we accept him as our brother, no matter which church he finds himself in. <clears throat> well, some very simple background tonight uh, as we move forward. Uh, and again, I've tried to make this as brief as possible. Chesterton was a large man in many ways. We'll see that tonight. And it's been a challenge for me to condense him uh, for you. But let me give you a little uh, simple background tonight. He was born on May 29. 1874. What's the date today? Today's the, well, that's very serendipitous, isn't it? That we're very close to his birthday. May 29, 1874. That makes him Lewis's senior, C.S. Lewis, that is, uh, by 14 years. He was born in London, England, and he died in 1936 of massive organ failure. And if you've ever seen a picture of Chesterton, you can guess why. Uh, he was slow, he was a slow train coming as a child. He, uh, he didn't speak until he was three. He didn't read until he was eight, which might be an encouragement for some of us parents. But once he did begin to read and once he did begin to speak, he began to devour books. Especially Chesterton began to devour fairy tales. And if any of you have seen the Rainbow Fairy se uh, series by, by Lang, the Folio Society uh, used to put them out, that is, uh, Chesterton was a huge fan of these fairy stories, and fairy became for Chesterton a sort of guiding principle, and uh, more of that to come. When he grew up, Chesterton was a large man. He was large in body, and he was, uh, he was large in soul. In body, he was six foot four in his mature age, and he weighed 300 pounds. And uh, he, uh, as one biographer uh, put it, as a youth, he had been slender. In his 20s, he was corpulent. By his 30s, Chesterton was obese. You couldn't miss him. You couldn't miss Chesterton walking down the street. Uh, and he wasn't slow in making his size 
an occasion for humor. He said on one occasion that he was the most generous and polite man in all of England because when he stood up on the bus to give his seat away, he could give them to three women at the same time. <laughs> but in his case, the large body was a sign of something even bigger, and that's his soul. Chesterton was a spiritual and an intellectual giant, and I'm convinced tonight that we ignore Chesterton only to our great disadvantage. And I know that we do ignore him, by and large, as a society, as a Christian society, at least. At a recent uh, visit to a, an academic Christian bookstore, I was grieved to see so few books by Chesterton on the, on the bookshelf. He's so big... And he's so important that he deserves a whole section all to himself. You walk into the Chesterton section with big, big doors and uh, you can delight yourself with all of his books. But if you were around in his day and if you saw Chesterton on the street, you might be temp tempted to think that he was an empty-headed fool. He was always incredibly disheveled and he was terribly absent-minded. As a child, as one biographer puts it, Chesterton was dreamy, absent-minded, and untidy, all qualities he preserved throughout his life. And his wife, Frances, they had a beautiful marriage. She had to dress him and to present him with a modicum of respectable, visible presence because for these outward things, he didn't care at all. He just couldn't care about them. As another biographer says, he was the fat man in the cloak and the brigand's hat, forever stopping for a pork pie and a beer, while he scribbled yet another poem or an article on his cuff or on the back of a sugar packet. In fact, if not for his organized wife, who tried her best to, to maintain that, that modicum of organization, there's no telling where Chesterton would be. He usually had no clue where he was on a day-to-day -day basis. He was the kind of man, true story, who would call a cab only to realize that his destination was across the street. <laughs> Missing the train wasn't the uh, exception for him, it was the rule. And one day he sent a telegram to her husband or to his wife, Frances, and she read it and it said, I am at Market Harborough, where am I supposed to be? And it wasn't out of, the, out of the ordinary for her to receive invoices from the bookstore because he would go there, pick up a book, start reading it, and just walk out the door and forget that he had to pay for the thing. And so regularly, she'd get these bills from the bookstore. Now, some of us, these stories of absent-mindedness and forgetfulness can make us feel better about our own cluttered lives as if our mental distraction places us in good company. <laughs> until we read that such was Chesterton's quality of mind that he would be writing out an essay longhand while dictating another entirely different essay to his secretary. And then we realize that Chesterton was not like most of us at all. His forgetful and unkempt appearance belied a first-rate mind. Chesterton was without doubt a genius. He wrote hundreds of books, thousands of essays, hundreds of poems and short stories. He wrote detective fiction that was wonderful. He lectured across Europe. He lectured across the United States, all without a formal university education. 
He was, in this sense, self-taught. In fact, Chesterton had a deep-seated suspicion towards organized academic learning. He had a short stint in college, but something happened at the university that disturbed him deeply enough to cause him to leave and to pursue his fortunes as a man of letters, that is, as a man of writing, something he did for the rest of his life. We can catch something of this skepticism towards the contemporary university, university when he writes, Without education, we are in a horrible and deadly danger of taking educated people seriously. And no doubt the shallow, narcissistic uh, stance of the academic life itself perceived an inflated sense of importance was at the heart of Chesterton's decision to turn away from the university altogether. Some of you might remember one of his most famous quotes, angels can fly because they can take themselves lightly. And evidently, there were not many angels at the university uh, for, for Chesterton to perceive. Nevertheless, despite his distance from the university, Chesterton was perhaps one of the most universally educated men that this planet has ever seen. His mind went everywhere. His thoughts went everywhere in the best sense of the phrase, and this can actually be one of the most discouraging things for us when we try to read Chesterton. He's lucid, he's clear, he's logical, but his thoughts often seem to spill the banks and go everywhere. He can crisscross the universe in three pages and leave us dazzled and dizzied. But see, that's his habit of mind. He's always looking at everything, always considering everything, always trying to get right to the bottom of things, and always trying to demonstrate how the most mysterious things and how the most unknowable things are at the same time the most sensible things, the things most available to common sense. I think the book that exemplifies Chesterton's quality of mind uh, best, or at least very aptly, is his little volume on Thomas Aquinas. It's one of his greatest, if you haven't read it. For those of you who don't know, Aquinas uh, is the most well-known of the schoolmen, that tradition of medieval scholastic theology uh, that stretches from Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century right up to William of Ockham in the, uh, in the 14th century. A lot of heavy hitters, theologically speaking, in this period. And Aquinas was born in 1225. He lived to 1274, and he carried on the scholastic tradition of systematizing the contemplation and conversation of God in a way that probably will never be uh, duplicated. Aquinas is incredibly weighty, and Aquinas is no easy writer to plumb. Well, when Chesterton decided to write a book on Thomas Aquinas, there were some around him who questioned the wisdom of this popularist like Chesterton delving into the world of this medieval giant to whom many scholars of his days had dedicated their entire lives. And these doubts were increased when his publishers learned that Chesterton had spent his preparation time not reading all of the secondary scholarship on Aquinas, but mostly had been reading just Aquinas himself. But when the book was finished, and one of the most renowned Aquinas scholars in his day, his contemporary Etienne Gilson, when he read 
what Chesterton had written on Thomas Aquinas, this great medieval doctor of the church. This is what Gilson had to say. Chesterton, he writes, makes one despair. I have been studying St. Thomas all my life, and I could never have written such a book. The so-called wit of Chesterton puts scholarship to shame. He has guessed all that which they had tried to demonstrate, and he has said all which they were more or less clumsily attempting to express in academic formulas. He is one of the deepest thinkers that has ever existed, Gilson says. Now, in view of Chesterton's brilliance, it would be impossible for me tonight to do justice in just one short lecture. I don't doubt that it would be impossible for me to do him justice with many lectures, long or short. But I hope I can whet your appetite for more. I hope that I can encourage you to spend your whole life reading G.K. Chesterton, and I think that you should. I think that Chesterton should be part of your staple diet. He's written so much that you can happily read something new from Chesterton every year, not to mention going back again and again and again to those things that you've already, uh, already read. For myself, I find that Chesterton, among other things, serves for me as a kind of ballast. If you're like me and you read a lot of Reformed Protestant and Puritan literature, books that pick up so well on the Protestant and biblical doctrine of God's transcendence, God's exalted state above his creature, and as a result, these writings have a certain kind of sternness about them. A good example is Thomas Shepard's long volume of the parable of the Ten Virgins. If that's all you've read and all you read, then it's easy to lose sight of the companion and biblical doctrine of God's Eminence, and I use that term with a thousand qualifications, that is his closeness to his creation, his presence to his creation, and his joy over his creation. And this is where Chesterton is so very helpful. It's in his perpetual state of enchantment at seeing the glory of God and the mystery of God in the mundane things of this creaturely world. And really, that's why I can read C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien with similar profit, because they've both learned, to borrow an important phrase from Chesterton's novel, they've both learned to see the fire from fairyland, the glory of the transcendent other in the common things of our common life. And they've learned to do this in good measure from reading G.K. Chesterton. Lewis's own conversion, you may not know, came in part through reading Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man. And he always avowed that that book is the most important apologetic this world has yet seen. In his letters, if you read those three volumes of letters, you'll see again and again him asking people, by the way, have you read Chesterton's Everlasting Man? <laughs> oh, did you happen to read that book I suggested to you? He thought it was very important. In fact, he said, reading Chesterton, this is Lewis writing, was one of the few major literary events of my life. It's one of the few events in reading books that has decisively shaped me. As one of Lewis's biographers writes, Chesterton walked into Lewis's heart without knocking. And what Chesterton does for Lewis through seeing this 
aptitude for glory in common things, that is, his power to perceive fairyland. This sets Lewis free to use myth, and especially Narnian myth, to display for his readers the glory of God. And it's very much the same with Tolkien. Tolkien, who had read The Everlasting Man and who had read orthodoxy very clearly, his defense, that is, uh, uh, Chesterton's defense of the faith, orthodoxy, that is, with its chapter, The Ethics of Elfland, Tolkien develops his own theory of fairy story in conversation with Chesterton's ideas. Fairyland for Chesterton, fairyland for Lewis, and fairyland for Tolkien is about the incomprehensible that surrounds us. And that same incomprehensibleness not only surrounds us, but it touches us in this life. And this incomprehensible reality, a la Chesterton, is at the same time the most sensible thing in the universe. It's the most reasonable thing. When you read Tolkien, if you've read him, you'll see this everywhere. Middle Earth, though beautiful, is mundane. But it's surrounded by glory, and it's permeated by glory, most specifically through the fairies, that is, the elves. And where the elves are most truly elf-like in Tolkien, like Galadriel, like King Thingol in Doriath, they are the most glorious, and they are the most fearfully weighty, and they are the most brilliant. And without fail, where the men and the women in Middle-earth are most glorious, these men and women are most fearsome and most brilliant. It always happens when they are in closest proximity to fairyland. The men and women are always the greatest when they are most like the elves, like Baron and Turin Turambar, or like Aragorn, the great king. You see, fairy, this otherness that surrounds the mundane and touches the mundane, leads the ordinary to greatness. And so Chesterton writes in his book, Heretics, he says, the man standing in his own kitchen garden with fairyland opening at its gate is the man with large ideas. This is precisely Smith from Tolkien's story, Smith of Wooten Major. He's a man who ventures into fairyland routinely from his small village, going on many excursions into fairyland, and one day he comes home after a long life of going to fairyland. And his little boy sees him and says, Dad, he says, Dad, you look like a giant. And this is so because fairyland, fairy, is all about greatness. It's all about immeasurableness. It's all about incomprehensibleness. Fairyland is wild. Fairyland is startling. Fairyland is by no means safe or tame. Which, by the way, Chesterton says our children need to read these kinds of classic fairy stories, not the sanitized ones we give them today. We need to read the unsafe ones. And for Chesterton, as those who followed him, the grand mistake, the big mistake in life is to look at this universe of ours and to think that we can colonize it 
with our own ideas. <laughs> to think that we can measure it with our own theories, intelligence, to think that we can map out the universe with our own wit and make perfect and complete sense of it. Essentially to blot out the whole notion of what fairy stories have been teaching us from childhood, if they've been read to us at all. The reality that Tolkien calls the perilous realm, the dangerous place, that thing, that place that is essentially indescribable. And because it is indescribable, because it is uncontainable, it has the power to enchant. It has the power to cast a spell over us. And such a spellbound state, says Chesterton, is fundamentally necessary to the state of being human. For without this state of enchantment, we are a stunted people. Greatness, giants, Chesterton and Tolkien and Lewis says, it comes from fairyland. Where did the Pevensey children grow large? <laughs> they grew large in Narnia. The quest of modern science, as Chesterton saw it, was the quest to disenchant and to demythologize, which is also, by the way, the quest of modern theology. The quest to explain everything. The quest to make sense of everything. The quest of modern science, says Chesterton, is to break the spell but in so doing, it breaks humanity. The poet, he writes in his book, Orthodoxy, only desires exaltation and expansion, a world to stretch himself into. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician, and by extension, the scientist, who seeks to get the heavens into his head. And it's his head that splits. How much happier would you be, he writes, how much more of you there would be if the hammer of a higher God could smash your small cosmos, scattering the stars like spangles, and leave you in the open, free now to look up as well as down. As long as you have mystery, you have health. When you destroy mystery, you create morbidity, he writes. And so he says the whole secret of mysticism is this, that man and woman can understand everything by the aid of what he or she does not understand. The morbid logician, the morbid scientist seeks to make everything lucid and succeeds in making everything mysterious. The mystic, the God-lover, allows one thing to be mysterious and everything else becomes plain. Everything else becomes clear. And I hope that some of you are reminded of C.S. Lewis in this statement, who was so inspired by Chesterton in so many ways. In his essay, Is Theology Poetry? Lewis famously writes this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe when the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but by it, I now see everything. The Christian, Lewis says, 
as Chesterton says, sees everything now in the light of God's mystery. We not only know by what we don't know, but we delight now in every creaturely good because of its inherent connection to that mystery which is God. The Christian has come to know the love of God that passes knowledge. And reading now the universe through that lens of boundless love, she becomes a person of infinite and childlike delight. Even now in the most common and mundane things, she sees fire from fairyland and the cowslip and in the periwinkle. And here you're going to have to let me quote one of Chesterton's more well-known passages at length, again from his book, Orthodoxy. Many of you have heard this before. Chesterton writes, a child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up does it again and again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening he says, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them the same. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Now, part by extension from being an admirable defense of the liturgy and the fact that we can be excited about saying the same things again and again and again, Chesterton captures here the heart of the Christian experience, which is the joy of God. It is not our joy that defines us as Christians. It is not our joy that makes us as Christians. It's the joy of the Lord. <laughs> And sometimes we can say that we can talk about the joy of the Lord and somehow forget that the Lord is joyful. God is joyous. God is full of delight. And encountering God, Chesterton says, we begin to participate in his own delight, in his own universe. Especially as the Lord joyously anticipates the renewal of all things. Look, he says, look, I am making all things new. I am doing this. I've encountered my lecture tonight, Man Alive. The, influence, uh, the life and influence of G.K. Chesterton. And I borrowed that phrase from his early novel, Man Alive. 1912 it came out. Man Alive follows the life of Innocent Smith. It's a curious connection to Tolkien, Smith of Wooten Major. And Innocent Smith, at the beginning, he bursts into this group of jaded and forlorn and gloomy people like an eccentric madman. And they all think he's insane and crazy, only to discover that Smith is making them all come alive. 
through his ability to find joy in the commonest of things. That fellow Smith, says Michael, one of the other characters in the book, there's a method in his madness. It looks as if he could turn into a sort of wonderland any minute of the day, simply by taking one step out of the plain road. Who would have thought to do the things that he does? Who would have thought that this plain bottle of wine could taste so good? Perhaps that is the real key to fairyland. And Rosamond, another character, she says in Smith's earshot, all is not gold that glitters. To which Smith responds vehemently, what a mistake that is, he says. Oh, what a mistake that is. All is gold that glitters. And don't you see? Everything in this yard looks like a jewel. The Christian says Chesterton is the holy fool who has come to see that the whole universe glitters with the reality of his father and she walks out from place to place in a state of joy and wonder and enchantment seeing glittering everywhere and the Christian Chesterton says she bursts into the world. She bursts into the gloom. She bursts into the darkness and says, oh, don't you see? All that glitters. Even in the midst of sin and even in the midst of brokenness, the word of the gospel comes, the word of the resurrection comes, and it says just this, don't you see? Don't you see that everything in this yard looks like a jewel? God is making all things new. Oh, don't you see? Don't you see that this whole universe, even where it groans, it is glittering with the glory of God? Oh, don't you see? What a challenging word this is to the church. What a challenging word to the church that has forgotten what it means to be excited about the glory of the gospel and the glory of God, that in Christ he is making all things new. He is making a kingdom that will never end. What a challenging word it is to any of us who have started to think that God and his church and his worship is boring. The mass is very long and tiresome, writes Chesterton, unless one loves God. Because we've seen the fire from fairyland, because we have seen the fire from fairyland, Chesterton says the thing that should characterize us is joy. Man is more like himself, writes Chesterton in his great book, in his great book at the end of Orthodoxy. Man is more manlike when joy is the fundamental thing in him and grief is superficial. Melancholy should be an innocent interlude, a tender and fugitive frame of mind. Praise should be the permanent pulsation of the soul. Pessimism is at best an emotional half-holiday. Joy is the uproarious labor by which the Christian lives. Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan. I love this. 
Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, it's the gigantic secret of the Christian. And so my brothers and sisters tonight, as together we approach this table of the Lord, as we have the privilege tonight of approaching a God whose joy cannot be contained, whose infinity it spills over into his creation, who says to us in these creatures of bread and of wine, I give you myself. In these mundane things, I give you a taste of the eternal drink of me. He says to us tonight, this is my blood. Eat of me. This is my body. And the Spirit at work in us tonight as he brings us to this table can bring us to this place where we've been countless times before. It can give us a spirit of infancy as we say to the Lord tonight, oh Lord, do it again. Do it again, Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.